like to invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to that passage of Scripture that we've now been considering for several consecutive weeks, Matthew and the fifth chapter, Matthew chapter 5. Again, as I've been doing, uh, I want to read to you the, the entirety of these first 12 verses that we find here in Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. And Matthew says to us there, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. It's very important to remember that as we read these Beatitudes. His disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, in keeping with the very theme that we mentioned last week, blessed are the meek. Lord, we come to you as poor paupers. We come to you as beggars. We come to you as those who natively have nothing in ourselves by which we may commend unto you. We come to you as people who are full of need. And we, Lord, this day bow before your word. We bow before your throne. And Lord, we yield ourselves up unto you and we ask that you would speak. We pray, Lord, that your will would be done. We pray that you would even this very day be pleased to bring your kingdom home to our hearts and that you would make us, Lord, to be this kind of man or woman or boy or girl that we see reflected in the words of our Lord in these Beatitudes. Please guide us. Please help us by your grace and your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be concentrating today, this morning and this afternoon, on the sixth verse in uh, this Sermon on the Mount. Uh, This is the fourth beatitude. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And as we come to this text, again, it's important to note That there is, as we move through these Beatitudes, a continued progression from one statement to the next. And I hope that you follow that. A continued progression from one statement to the next. And this one, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, like the others of necessity, follows the one that comes prior to it. 
So let me try to explain it this way. No man ever becomes hungry and thirsty after righteousness unless he has first passed through a sense of his poverty. No man becomes thirsty and hungry for righteousness unless he has then also passed through a sense of this true gospel mourning over who he sees himself to be before God. And no man comes to this hungering and this thirsting after righteousness until he has yielded himself up unto God in meekness, until he has laid himself down as a poor beggar, as a poor sinner in the presence of God and yielded himself up, giving all of himself unto God. No man, until he's done those things, until he's become those things, will ever thirst and hunger in the way that our Lord is saying thirsting or meaning thirsting and hungering. So all of this is vital. And all of these things, poverty of spirit, mourning over sin, meekness before God, moves a man to hunger and moves a man to thirst after righteousness, which... I'm going to say at the outset of this this morning, this verse and what our Lord is teaching us here by these words, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, is central to the gospel and central to the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God which Christ is preaching about in this Sermon on the Mount. And until we've become poor, until we have mourned, until we have laid ourselves at the feet of God, this central thing that our Lord speaks of here in verse 6 will never be realized in us. But if all of those things that have happened prior to this are working in our lives, then this too will be true of us. Now, Lloyd-Jones says this about this particular verse. He says, I do not know of a better test that anyone can apply to himself or to herself in this whole matter of the Christian profession than a verse like this. Remember, these Beatitudes are not a guidebook, how to get into heaven. These Beatitudes are a mirror by which when we look in them, we can plainly see the reflection of ourselves and measure ourselves by them to determine, is this true of me? Am I this person? Because only these kinds of people, this kind of person that our Lord is speaking of, is the kind of person that is actually a member of the kingdom of God. And Lord Lloyd-Jones says, I can think of no better test than to bring this verse to bear upon the heart. He goes on, if this verse is to you one of the most blessed statements of the whole Scripture, you can be certain, quite certain, you are a Christian. If it is not one of the most blessed statements to you in all of the Bible, then you had better examine the foundations again. What you desire and what you seek is a great revelation of who you are and of what you are. A careful analysis of what your heart pursues becomes a valuable tool in rightly evaluating our character. 
Jesus says in the very next chapter in this Sermon on the Mount, verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this verse aims at that very thing. It aims at the heart. It aims at the desire of a man. And as we mine the depths of our Lord's words here, we come in this verse to what I would call the very center. We've been working our way through each of these statements individually. And as we do that, we keep digging down further and further each time. And now we come to the gold. We have here one of the most notable statements of the gospel. Everything that the gospel contains can be found in what our Lord is saying here. And everything that the gospel has to give can be found in this one statement. And you say, I don't see it. Well, I hope, God willing, to show you this today. I hope. There is... In these words, the heart of the gospel. There is in these words, the heart of the kingdom of God. There is in these words, the heart of the whole matter of man as he relates to God and as he relates to all things. And I say that for several reasons. That this is the gold, that this is the center, that this is the core, that this is the gospel, that this is the kingdom, and that this is everything that has to do with man and his connection unto God and who he is before God. I say it for several reasons, and these reasons that I'm saying it for will become the basis of our outline this morning and this afternoon. And we'll look at two of them this morning, and we'll look at two of them this afternoon. Okay? The first reason that I say that this is the heart, the center, the marrow of the gospel, is because this statement strikes at the very heart and the very center of man himself. He says, blessed are those who hunger, and blessed are those who thirst. And that's put forward as language to, to intimate desire. Man is born with a hunger, and man is born with a thirsting. He's born longing for something. We can look at this from a a purely physical or bodily or creaturely aspect. And we can see, when a man is born, when when a child is born, they're born with lungs that cry out for care and love and support for nourishment. Man, when he's born, is born with an appetite that provokes him to scream out in his hunger and to scream out in his thirst for milk. We see that in babies. But as he develops rationally, as man develops morally, we find that man is made of much more than a body. He's made of of much more than what we see. C.S. Lewis said, Man is not merely a body who happens to have a soul, but man is a soul who has been given a body. And in that soul, we find that man longs for much more than merely this physical appetite of food and drink. He's a spiritual being. 
You are a spiritual being. You are not just a body. What you do with yourself in this earth is not the end. You were born not just a body. You were born with a never dying soul. And every single person in this room has been given that never dying soul. And much like the physical nature, that soul is born with a longing in it. Man is a spiritual being. And he is equipped with spiritual longings for satisfaction. Spiritual longings for fulfillment. And this verse is pointing us to that very thing. Our Lord's words here in verse 6 of Matthew chapter 5 are aimed at this longing. At who man is at the very core of his being. The whole world at this moment, and all the world, all the history of mankind up to this moment, has this inconsolable longing within them. Every single man, woman, boy, and girl has this desire, this innate desire within them to be satisfied, this need to be filled, this need to be happy. And that's what this statement is pointing to. Blessed are they who do hunger and thirst. They shall be filled. That's at the bottom of who we are as human beings, as spiritual creatures. And the specific people that our Lord has in view here are the only truly happy people. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be filled. The world wants this. The world wants to be filled. The world wants to be happy. That's the great engine that powers every action. It's the great engine that powers every ambition of all mankind throughout all history. You could go down a list. All the work, all the striving, all the effort all the entertainment, all the vacations, all the innovations, all the gadgetry, all the art, all the cinema, all the sexual exploits, all of the sports, all of the exercise, all of the drugs, all of the vocational prowess and excellence. At the bottom of it, is man's being driven with a need to be satisfied and looking for that satisfaction in every single one of these things. You can even add to that all the fighting that we see in the world, all the warring is driven by this. It's so, it's so strange to say that. But all of the fighting and all of the clamoring and all of the warring that we see in this world is driven by that same thing. To be happy. To be filled James says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure? Do they not come from your desires for satisfaction? Do they not come from your desires for happiness and from, for fulfillment? James says, you lust, you desire, that's man. 
Always longing. Always looking. Always wanting. And the great tragedy is that though the world gives itself to seek for happiness at any cost, it never seems to find it. It's never satisfied. You lust, James says, and have not. You lust and have not. And we can look at the world around us and we can see that very thing. The Lord puts it this way in Isaiah 55. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? That marks out all of humanity. Man has hewn for himself broken cisterns that can hold no water. Do you see that in the world around you? Can you see something of that perhaps maybe in your own heart? A hewing out of cistern after cistern after cistern that you want to fill. And it's like it has a hole in the bottom. And as quickly as you fill it with the things of this world, it rushes away, it's lost, it's gone forever, and you find within your soul still this longing, this emptiness, this wanting. That's the great tragedy of the world today. The world rages and foams at the mouth with this longing to be fulfilled. And the answer to all of that is found in these words. The world rages in its madness, in its pursuit to find satisfaction and fulfillment and happiness. And the answer to it is found right in these words. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they and they alone is the emphasis shall be filled. God has made us every single one of His creatures. He has made us for Himself. And the human heart is restless, as Augustine said, until it rests in Him. And the problem with the world at this moment is that it hasn't understood that. Their aim is off. They're missing the mark. They make happiness their chief end. It's the one thing. It's the one thing at the bottom of all other things that I seek after and the world never finds it. Because whenever you put happiness, Lloyd-Jones said, before righteousness, you'll always end up not with happiness, but misery. I want you to pay attention to this. Because this is very important. Notice the order and the structure of the verse. He doesn't say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for happiness. That's not the order. Righteousness is at the bottom. Blessed are those who thirst and hunger for righteousness. Righteousness is given here as the substance which fills the man. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for that and that alone, the Lord Jesus is saying, is the proper diet of the soul. Then and only then shall a man be truly filled, shall a man be truly satisfied, shall a man be truly joyful, shall a man be truly happy. And when anything else goes before that, it's doomed for failure. 
substitute this language for anything else and it's doomed for failure. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for fame. Failure. Blessed are those who thirst and hunger for wealth. Failure. Blessed are those who thirst and hunger for happiness. Our Lord says, blessed are those who thirst and hunger for righteousness. You see, this is the great irony of what all the world is doing at this moment. Their main goal, their main objective in all their work, in all their pleasure, in all their entertainment is to satisfy their cravings with cravings. Their desire to be filled with the desire to be filled. And it's madness when you think about it. It's chasing the tail. They're fixated only on what they feel. They're fixated only on what it is that they want to feel without ever seeking to discover and deal with the cause of this great hunger and the cause of this great pain that attends their souls. And as a result, they only exacerbate their problem and they never really find happiness. They never really find the happiness that they're after. And I can say, based upon the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in this text, they never will. They cannot be happy who seek after happiness. They cannot be happy who seek after blessedness in any other way than what we find here. This is the divine formula. And happiness ever eludes the world because it was never meant to be given. Happiness was never meant to be given the place that it's been given. Hunger and thirst are normal. Spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst is normal. Satisfying those cravings with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not normal. It's not. It's empty. We're not meant to hunger and thirst after experiences. We're not meant to hunger and thirst after blessedness. It's not the way our Lord puts it here. And the reason that I want to emphasize that, particularly for us, is not just so that we can step back and we can see that this is the core of everything our Lord is teaching because it aims at the very center and the very heart of the soul of man. But the reason that I want to put it forth in this way first is because even among professing believers, there can oftentimes be this falling into, even into churches, Churches are structured around happiness. Churches are structured in all that they do around trying to help people feel a certain kind of way. And all the while they dismiss, all the while they ignore, all the while they throw aside this one thing, righteousness. They don't aim at righteousness. And our Lord says that that's not the way to pursue blessedness. Blessedness comes as a consequence of righteousness. If we want to truly be happy, then we must truly hunger for righteousness. He says later on in this Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6 and verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. But instead we seek for all these things 
rather than righteousness. And we mix up this formula. And as a consequence, all these things, whatever they may be, are either never at it, or they're all empty, or even worse, they become a canker to our souls. We need only look at the streets around us to have a very visible and tangible picture of what's happening to the soul of man. Look at the drug e- epidemic. You, you hear a person who is, is addicted to drugs, pining after the drug, saying, I've got to get another fix. And as they go from fix to fix to fix, it mutilates their bodies. It's like a canker to them. It eats holes right through them. And that's a tangible picture of what happens within the soul of man when he doesn't put righteousness in its right place, but instead instead pursues fulfillment and joy in earthly things. And any church that preaches any other gospel than the gospel that's preached in this text is not preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us then to the second reason I say these words are the heart and the solution and the center of all our Lord is saying here. Not just because the words are aimed at the center of man, but also because of the object given as the main pursuit of this blessed man. Namely, righteousness. That's why I say that this is the gold. This is the core. This is the heart of the gospel because of this one word, righteousness. Now, I I want us to be careful here because we're not told in this text exactly what this righteousness that our Lord is speaking of is. And it's very easy when you come to a text like this to run ahead in your minds because of what we know about the Scripture, it's very easy for us to run ahead in our minds and to begin to automatically assume certain things about this righteousness that our Lord is speaking of. And I don't want us to do that. I want us to, I want us to work our way through it. Because I'm not certain that the righteousness that oftentimes immediately comes to mind is the only righteousness that our Lord has in mind. So we do well to work through it. And therefore, when we come to a matter such as this, we must first recognize this one thing, the weight which Scripture and the weight which Christ Himself places upon righteousness. I don't mean any particular type of... I'm saying righteousness, a blanket statement. The weight that is put on righteousness... We've alluded to that already in looking at this particular verse, that it is the blessed man who's thirsting and hungering after righteousness that's filled. But additionally, and more broadly, we can see that it's the primary subject of this entire sermon. If you read this sermon and you don't have righteousness at the center of the sermon, you will inevitably go in the wrong direction. Okay? That's very important. Christ mentions righteousness in this sermon five times. Matthew mentions it seven times. Five of the times are in this one sermon. Actually, the Gospel of Matthew mentions righteousness more than any of the other Gospels. 
But in this sermon, our Lord refers to righteousness five times. That's not including all of the different times that He speaks about the law. And the first two uh, times that He speaks about righteousness in this sermon are actually in these Beatitudes. This is the first verse. Blessed are those who thirst and hunger for righteousness. And then in verse 10, Blessed are you when they persecute you for righteousness' sake. And then he mentions it again the third time. And I think this is very instructive in, ch- in chapter 5 and verse 20. Where he says to us that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. That statement alone shows us the importance placed upon righteousness by our Lord. That there is a wrong righteousness, the righteousness of the Pharisees, and that there is a right righteousness. And all of that has massive implications. If you just take the one verse, verse 20, it has massive implications. The kingdom of God is at stake in how we understand this righteousness. Eternal life is at stake, is in the balance, depending on how we understand this righteousness. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's massive implications for how we understand and interpret righteousness. And there's a sense in which the whole Bible, the whole Bible, the whole of redemptive history is about this righteousness. The whole heart of the gospel is about this righteousness. Paul says it this way, Romans 1.16, we know the verse well, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. But then in verse 17, he goes on and he says, for in it... The righteousness of God is revealed. And there are layers to that statement. And there are layers to Christ's words here. What do they mean? What do they mean? The righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. The first thing, I think that when we are dealing with righteousness, we must remember is that all true righteousness spoken of in the word of God begins in God. We have to be careful, like I said, that we don't run ahead, that we don't form a certain bias or basis for interpreting this passage in front of us. Paul calls it, Romans 1.17, he calls it, he refers to it as the righteousness of God. When Christ refers to this righteousness in Matthew 6.33, He calls it His righteousness, God's righteousness. And that's so because God Himself is righteous. You understand what I'm saying? This is where we have to start. I want to be careful that we don't, we don't just tune out at this point and we just say, we know this, the righteous, we know this. Because if, you, if we don't think through this, if we don't reason our way through this, then we won't understand at all what Christ is saying here. 
God Himself is righteousness, and all righteousness, all true righteousness, the righteousness that Christ has in mind here, begins in God. It begins in Him. He is the rock, Moses said. His work is perfect. For all His ways are justice, a God of truth, and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. Daniel, when Daniel prays in Daniel 9, O Lord, righteousness, he says, belongs to you. And then he goes on, he says, For the Lord our God is righteous, and it's important to note this kind of language, in all the works which He does. Or Psalm 119, 137. You are righteous, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Well, what does all that mean? It means that all that God does is good. And all that God does is right. And all that God does is in perfect accordance with His perfect will. And all that He does is always consistent with His own character. God in His own perfection is the essence and His own perfection is the standard for what is right. The judge of all the earth will do right, Abraham said. Because all that He does is done in an unswerving faithfulness to always preserve and always display the glory of His name. Every single thing that God does, He does for that one thing. And that is His intrinsic, His immutable, His moral perfection, or you could call it His attributive righteousness. And because He is who He is, He alone sets the standard for what we are to be. That can be called His legislative righteousness. Because He is righteous, He requires a perfect righteousness from man. So He gives man a law by which that man is to live. And that law that He gives is holy, and that commandment is holy, and it's righteous, and it's good, Paul tells us. And God comes with that law, and He demands that man himself, under that law, should live in conformity to all that God is, and all that He commands, for the glory of God. That he should live and that he should walk consistently in this way. And I would suggest this morning that this is something of the righteousness that Christ really does have in view here. The righteousness of God as righteousness is in God and as God requires righteousness of all mankind. Blessed are those who thirst and hunger for that righteousness. That perfect standard and conformity to it in the presence of God. And if we run ahead of that, then again, we don't understand entirely and completely what it means to thirst and hunger for righteousness. Now I want to build this argument for you a little bit. He says in verse 18, chapter 5, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until it is fulfilled. Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's what he says in verse 18. And he's telling us that the blessed man is the man that's marked by a longing for this righteousness before God. 
He wants to be made right in the presence of this holy and this perfectly righteous God. That's what this man is longing for. That's what this man is hungering after. Let me put it negatively and positively to help us understand it a bit better. This man who hungers and thirsts for the righteousness that Christ is speaking of here, the righteousness of God, as that righteousness is found in God, and as God demands it from man negatively, that man who's thirsting and hungering for this is a man who has a desire to be free from sin. Because it's sin that ultimately separates him from God. That's what Romans, I don't have time to go into, but that's what Romans 5 is all about. That sin entered into the world through one man, and therefore by that one man, sin has come upon all men, and death through that man. The man has become separated from God because of sin, and therefore he's disobeyed God, he's under condemnation, and he's cut off from God, he's separated from God. And the man who's hungering, and the man who's thirsting after righteousness, this kind of righteousness, is the man who sees that sin and rebellion have separated him from the face of this holy God, and he longs, he has a longing in his soul to get back into that original relationship of righteousness in the presence of God that man once enjoyed. It's a desire to be free from the power of sin that holds him captive. It's a desire to be free from the very desire of sin. Because we find that the man who truly examines himself in the light of the Scriptures not only discovers that he's in bondage to sin, but still more horrible, more horrible than that, is the fact that he likes it, that he loves it, that he wants it. Even after he's seen that it's wrong, even after that he's seen that it's a striking out against God, Yet he still wants it. And the man that sees this in himself, this bondage to sin, this desire for sin, he begins to have this hungering and this thirsting and this longing in his soul to be rid of all of the deepest pollution of sin that he finds in every aspect of his life, every corner, every crevice, every hole, every depth within the deep abyss of his heart. He wants it to be eroded. Eradicated. That's thirsting and hungering after righteousness. Positively, to hunger and thirst for righteousness is nothing but a longing to be positively holy. You could put it like this. The man who thirsts and hungers for righteousness is a man who wants to exemplify, Lloyd-Jones said this, the Beatitudes in his daily life. He wants meekness. He, he longs for mercy. Not, not mercy towards Him as much as mercy out towards others. That His life would be a demonstration of mercy. He wants purity. He wants peace. He longs to see all of those things that our Lord is preaching about in this Sermon on the Mount come to a realization in His life. He wants to show the fruit of the Spirit in His every single action that I would be a man that's marked by love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. He longs for that. 
It means that his supreme desire in life is to know God and to be in fellowship with Him and to walk with Him in the light as He is in the light. To have fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to thirst and hunger after this righteousness. The man our Lord is speaking of here is a man who longs for that above everything else. You could put it like this. It's a longing to be like Christ. This man looks at him. He sees him here in this sermon. He sees him ascending this mountain. He sees him opening his mouth and teaching his disciples. And he hears these precious words falling from the lips of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he looks at him and he sees A perfect picture of a perfect man. He sees the incarnate Son of God with whom the Father is well pleased. He sees the one in whom the Father said is all my delight. He sees His perfect, positive obedience. He sees His posture towards those around Him. He sees His kindness. He sees His compassion. He sees His mercy. He sees how He handles the truth of God. He sees how He handles the souls of men. He sees His reaction to His enemies. He sees His complete and utter surrender to His Father's will. And He says, I want to be like that. He looks at Christ with supreme longing. And then he looks at himself. That's the righteousness of God set forth in bodily form in my very presence, the Lord Jesus Christ. And oh, how my soul longs to be be like that. And oh, how I thirst and how I hunger that I might be like this man who stands before me. But then when he glances at the Lord Jesus and sees all of His beauty, all of His perfection, all that He is, he then looks at himself. And I would suggest that it's right at that point that what you are is understood with absolute clarity. Everything that I want, I am not. I want the righteousness of God. I want to be free from sin. I want to be holy even as He is holy. And I see that in Christ. I don't see it in myself. And it's precisely at this point that another righteousness presented in the Scriptures, His legal, His forensic righteousness, becomes categorically and inescapably vital and altogether irresistibly lovely to that man who is thirsting and longing after this perfect righteousness. We're told very plainly in the third chapter of Romans what this righteousness is, this forensic, this legal righteousness. And notice again the language of Paul here. It's very interesting to me how Paul refers to righteousness, actually how most of the apostles refer to righteousness when they're speaking of it, no matter what aspect of righteousness they're looking at. 
But in Romans, in the third chapter, verses 21 and 22, just listen to the words. It is the righteousness, Paul says, of God. Righteousness begins in Him. Apart from the law, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all who believe, that there is one who has come, that He might be made for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, Paul says, and sanctification, and redemption. That God has provided a righteousness to match His perfect righteousness, which He requires of us. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin. He carried our guilt. He carried our sin. He carried our burden. He carried our shame to the cross. I believe it, it was Calvin. Whether you agree with this or not, I can understand the sentiment. I believe it was Calvin that said, there is a sense in which this perfect, righteous man, God-man, when he went to the cross, became the worst of sinners. Because it was there when He went to the cross that He bore our sorrows. He bore our shame. He bore our guilt in His own body on that tree. So that, Paul says, we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And seeing this, the man who's longing and the man who's thirsting for righteousness in the way that our Lord Jesus means it here. In seeing this, not only this perfect man, but then this perfect act of obedience by which He emptied Himself and He went to the cross and He died this death in the place of sinners. When this man who's longing, when this man who's thirsting, when this man who's hunting for righteousness in my life, that I might be the man that God wants me to be, sees Him nailed to that tree. He's made to long for that perfect Alien righteousness. He says to himself, I find within myself continually and only that which is contrary to God. I find within myself only that which is contrary to what I must be. I find within myself that which is only contrary to what I want to be. But in Him... In Him there's a perfect righteousness that makes me to be the perfect righteousness of God that I long for. And therefore I long for that righteousness. All else is rubbish. All else is fit for the dunghill. That I may gain Christ. That I may be found in Him. Paul says, not having my own righteousness in Philippians 3 
What is any of... I want righteousness. I need righteousness. I long for righteousness. I hunger for righteousness. I know the righteousness of God. And, and I, I look at myself and I see all that I am, even my righteousness, and I cast it to the side. I throw it on the dunghill so that I might be found in Christ alone, not having my own righteousness. What is that in the presence of God? But that I might have that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. That's what I want. This righteousness in Christ is supreme to all other righteousnesses. And therefore, in my hungering and in my thirsting, I long for this, the best of all righteousnesses. No other righteousness will do if a man truly hungers for that perfect righteousness in the presence of God. And this imputation of this perfect righteousness from the Lord our righteousness, when we come to Him with this longing, this thirsting, this hungering after righteousness, and when we come to Him by faith believing, yes, Lord, You and You alone have that which I, my soul needs and wants and longs for. When that happens, that makes way and gives birth to a hunger and to a thirst for the full implementation and actualization of a righteousness that can and is personally realized in the man. Let me explain what I mean. This is an implanted righteousness. That this man that the Lord Jesus is talking about longs for and hungers after. You see, the language in Matthew 5, 6 is in the present tense. So whenever it's in the present tense, it's continual. Blessed is the man who hungers and keeps on hungering. And blessed is the man who thirsts and keeps on thirsting for righteousness. This hunger and this thirst does not stop with imputation. If, if by some measure a man sees something in Christ and says, I need that, but then after having come to Him, he no longer hungers and thirsts for righteousness, then whatever it is that he thinks that he got from Christ, he did not get It's not a matter of walking an aisle and praying a prayer and raising a hand and saying, I believe. What has that imputation done? What has that union with Christ done? Those who are blessed are those who go on hungering and those who go on thirsting after a man has found Christ to be his righteousness then he longs for the work to be perfected. And he longs for the work to be completed in him that he might have a righteous nature, not just a righteous standing, as glorious as that is. That the whole of his being might be conformed to the image truly of Christ his Savior, established not upon his own weakness, but brought forth and perfected by the power of the union of Christ within him. Faith working through love, Paul says. He says it this way to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, having these precious promises 
precious promises of God's acceptance, the precious promises of God's being with us, the precious promises of God's fellowship, the precious promises of the union of Christ. That's what Paul, Paul has been alluding to in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and then in the first verse of chapter 7 he says, in light of all of that, in light of all of these precious promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all filth, all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It's not enough for this man to know that his sin is forgiven, that his standing is settled. He knows all this and he rejoices in all this and he loves all this and he cherishes all this and he sings of all this. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are. My glorious dress. But he also knows he still has within his heart a fountain of sin. And bitter waters that continually flow from it. And he longs for all that to be clean. Create in me a clean heart, David cried. Renew in me a steadfast spirit. I, like you, O Lord, you desire truth in the inward parts, and I desire truth now in the inward parts, a mind to blend with outward life while keeping at thy side. And he cries out, Lord, help me to be righteous in my character. Let no temptation get the mastery over me. Subdue my pride. Correct my judgment. Keep my will in check. Make me to be holy in the inmost part of my being. My conduct to be all that it should be. And he longs for that. He longs to be made right. And he longs to be kept right. That he should put off the old man and put on the new man who's renewed in knowledge according to the image of Him who created Him, according, as Paul says in Ephesians, to true righteousness and holiness. He longs for all that. That's the righteousness that Christ is speaking of. A righteousness that begins in God. A hungering and a thirsting after that. A righteousness that then comes to man and says, this is how you must be, how you must appear, how you must live before me. And the man examines himself and he sees nothing of that in himself, yet he longs for it and he wants it. And then he hears of that imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, that forensic and that legal righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, that is my hope. And then after coming to him, that he should be filled with that righteousness. He says, O Lord, do your work in me, that all of me might be righteous through and through. He longs for that. He not only longs for that, but he longs for something else. He longs that the whole earth should be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That his Father's kingdom should come. That's the prayer that Jesus teaches these hungering and thirsting people to pray. That His Father's kingdom should come. And that His will should be done on earth as it is in heaven. And He therefore looks and He hastens the coming of the day of the Lord. Even laboring, even working, even longing and promoting it. To ensure that righteousness is done in the land. He hungers for righteousness before God. He hungers for righteousness in Himself He hungers for righteousness between man and man. 
that the glory and the honor and the truth and the righteousness and the holiness of God should alone be promoted and propagated at home and abroad. He hungers. He thirsts for these things. And Christ says, that man, and only that man, is blessed. That man and only that man will be filled. I say this is a mirror whereby we may look and we may see in it the very core of our being and measure ourselves by it. We may see in it the very core of the redemptive history of God and the kingdom of God and the gospel of God and the very heart of who God is. We may ask ourselves, do I hunger and thirst for righteousness? This kind of righteousness? And if you do, then Christ says, blessed are you. You shall be filled. And God willing, this afternoon we'll come back and we'll look more at thirsting and hungering and try to fill that out a bit and then what it means to be filled. But this is the righteousness that he speaks of. It's at the very core of the gospel. It strikes at the very root of man. Might God help us to be this kind of people. Father, we bow before you. And Lord, we all can relate to the man in the world chasing after experiences and happiness and joy and blessedness in all of his contrivances and all of the imaginations of his heart. We all can relate. We've all felt in some measure the emptiness of all of those things. And Lord, we pray that in light of all of that, you would make us to be this kind of people, that we would see that our Lord Jesus says that the blessed man, the man who's truly filled, the man who's truly satisfied, the man who's truly satiated, the man who's truly made happy, is only the man who thirsts and hungers for righteousness, is only the man who has found that perfect righteousness to be in Christ alone. And is only the man who longs that by Christ, that righteousness should not only be imputed to him, but that it should be implanted in his very own soul. God, help us. We are weak and we are needy. And you alone can do this. And we pray that you would do it for us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.